Amen. Please be seated. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 10 this morning, which are about election and hardening. Paul says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And we'll talk about what that, what that means. And once again, I think we're in the deep end to the pool here. But if at any point you start to feel a bit panicky because your feet can't touch the bottom, that's okay. None of our feet can touch the bottom of the depths of these mysteries. But God will help us. He will hold us fast while we're in the deep end of his pool. And by his grace, I trust that he will teach us what we need to know and sanctify us by these particular truths this morning. And let's pray now that he would do that in all of our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the parts that are easy to understand and also for the parts that are hard to understand because we know that all the parts come from you. All scripture is breathed out by you and is therefore profitable for us. And so we pray that you would help us now as we come to this part of your word. Help us to rightly understand it and to humbly receive it and to joyfully live in light of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans chapter 11, reading verses seven through 10. These are the words of the living God. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. As you can see in your sermon notes, we'll look first at election and hardening in verse 7, and we'll spend more time on that than on the other two points, much more time. Then we'll look at hardening predicted in verse 8, and hardening prayed for in verses 9 and 10. Paul begins verse 7, as you can see there, with the question, what then? In other words, what then should we say about all this? All that he's been talking about really in chapters 9 through 11 about the unbelief of Israel. What then should we make of all that? What conclusion should we draw from all that? What then? He summarizes, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, What was Israel seeking? It was seeking righteousness, right standing with God, to be righteous before God, 
to be right with God. That's what they were seeking. Look back at chapter nine for just a moment. If you flip back to chapter nine, verse 30, let me read a few verses here reminding us of what Israel was seeking. Chapter nine, verse 30. What shall we say then? Similar question. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then spilling over into chapter 10, verse 2, Paul says there, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So when Paul says in verse 7 of our passage this morning that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, he's talking about the fact that Israel failed to obtain righteousness. And they failed to obtain righteousness because they were seeking righteousness by law instead of by faith. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness instead of submitting to God's righteousness. They failed to obtain what they were seeking because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That's what Paul's been saying. They were so focused on trying to climb up the ladder to get to heaven that they failed to notice Christ had come down the ladder from heaven to earth to save sinners from their sin by grace through faith in him. They failed to believe the gospel. They failed to trust in the righteousness of Christ. They rejected the gospel and continued trusting in their own righteousness. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Then Paul says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect obtained righteousness, and you may recall that's what Paul's been talking about as well. For example, back up in verse 2 of chapter 11, he said, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Middle of verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So the elect obtained it. Both the elect remnant of ethnic Israelites and the elect among the Gentiles. Again, as Paul said back in chapter 9, verse 30, that we just read, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. The elect obtained it not because there was anything special in them that set them apart from the rest. No, the elect obtained it because God chose them by his grace and because Christ died for them on the cross and because the Spirit applied to them the redemption purchased by Christ by effectually calling them to himself, by regenerating their dead hearts 
and by enabling them to repent of their sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the elect did not obtain righteousness by works. They obtained righteousness by grace through faith in Christ. It was not an earned paycheck. It was an undeserved gift. But, Paul says, the rest were hardened. Now you may recall we talked about God hardening Pharaoh back in chapter 9 where Paul said in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. In other words, God has the sovereign right as God to show mercy to whomever he wills And he has the sovereign right as God to harden whomever he wills. And that is what he did with Pharaoh. And that is what he did with, quote, the rest of the Israelites here in verse 7. And you may recall we looked at several passages in the book of Exodus, passages that mention the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And there were three kinds of passages. We won't look at all of them, but just to review here, I think this would be helpful. Three kinds of passages in the book of Exodus. We called them declarations, descriptions, and denunciations. Declarations, descriptions, and denunciations. There were declarations that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. For example, chapter 4, verse 21 I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then there were descriptions of God actually hardening Pharaoh's heart. For example, chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and Pharaoh did not listen to them. And then there were denunciations of Pharaoh for hardening his own heart. For example, chapter 9, verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Looking at it from below, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Looking at it from above, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And here again we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility both at play. Divine sovereignty, namely God controls everything and rules over everything that happens in his universe... And human responsibility, namely we are responsible for our choices and accountable to God for our choices. Divine sovereignty is ultimate, of course. Human responsibility is not ultimate in this universe because God is ultimate, not man. The will of God is ultimate, not the will of man. But the ultimacy of divine sovereignty doesn't negate the reality of human responsibility. Sometimes one is emphasized more than the other in the Bible. Sometimes one comes to the foreground and the other recedes into the, into the background. But both are always there and both are always important. 
And we should keep both always in mind. We should keep both always in view. Whenever we think about divine sovereignty, we can't lose sight of human responsibility. Whenever we think about human responsibility, we can't lose sight of divine sovereignty. Like a mother watching her two children run around on the playground, while she's focusing on one of them, of course she doesn't forget the other. Whenever she's watching one, she always keeps an eye on the other. And that's how we should be when it comes to divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We always need to keep an eye on both. So when it says here in verse 7 that, quote, the rest were hardened, it's focusing our attention on divine sovereignty. But of course, we should also keep in mind human responsibility, which Paul has mentioned several times leading up to this. For example, Israel did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as if it were based on works. That's something that they did, they were responsible for. They sought to establish their own righteousness and didn't submit to God's righteousness. Paul said, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. He quoted, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And remember where it says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And even at the beginning of the verse that mentions God's hardening, verse 7, it says that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. So they were responsible. We could say they hardened their own hearts like Pharaoh. And at the same time, God was sovereign and he hardened their hearts. Thomas Schreiner said about this, the concept of hardening is difficult, but Paul doesn't think such hardening exempts Israel from responsibility. Certainly he doesn't believe that they were mere puppets or robots. Probably the idea is that God hardened those who were already sinners so that there is a judicial hardening. A judicial hardening. In other words, it's part of God's judgment. John Murray wrote, The hardening, it should be remembered, is of a judicial character. It presupposes ill desert. And in the case of Pharaoh, particularly the ill desert of his self-hardening. Hardening may never be abstracted from the guilt of which it is the wages. It is judicial hardening and finds its judicial ground in the unbelief and disobedience of its objects. What then, Paul asks, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now let's come up for air. Let me mention two things here by way of application. First, let me, let me say it this way. With humility, we need to embrace the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. With humility, we need to embrace the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. There is some mystery here, to be sure. 
when it comes to this whole thing, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, there is some mystery, but it's not regarding what the Bible says because that's clear. The mystery is regarding exactly how what the Bible says fits together. The Bible tells us that God is sovereign over our actions. And the Bible tells us that we are responsible for our actions. But the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how those two truths fit together. Those two puzzle pieces are both part of the puzzle. They're both part of the whole picture. But we're not told exactly how they fit together. We know that they fit together because they come from the mind of God. But we don't know how they fit together. There's some mystery to it. And that's okay when you pause and think about it. Wouldn't we expect there to be some mystery in the Bible? If its author is infinite and perfect and we are finite and sinful, wouldn't we expect there to be some things that we don't fully understand? But just because we don't fully understand them doesn't mean they're not true. Just because we don't fully understand how God could be sovereign over our choices and at the same time we could be responsible for our choices, just because we don't understand how both of those things could be true doesn't mean they're not true. With apologies to the Greek philosopher Protagoras, man is not the measure of what's true. Our finite, sinful minds are not the measure of what is true in the universe. God, who made the universe, is the measure of what is true in the universe. And he says that both of these things are true, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And therefore, with humility, we should embrace the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And the fact that there's mystery here shouldn't keep us from trusting God. It's not like we should trust God only so far as we can understand him and no further. No, we should trust God fully even if we can't understand him fully. Like Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. We should seek to understand the revealed things. And with humility, we should embrace the mystery of the secret things. So as we wrestle with these things, let's be humble before God and let's also wonder and be amazed at his incomprehensible ways and trust him fully and be thankful that he is God, that he is the maker of the puzzle whose pieces all fit together perfectly and make a beautiful picture 
that we will see one day and be satisfied by forever. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Secondly, by way of application here, I don't want us to overlook how wonderful that little phrase is in the middle of verse 7. The elect obtained it. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect obtained it. The elect obtained righteousness. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have righteousness. You have right standing with God. You are righteous in the sight of God. You're right with God. But how can that be? How can that be, we we think, we feel? Because we know how sinful we are. Well, it's because our sins have been pardoned. And we've been clothed permanently in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The verse on the front of the bulletin that we thought about before we begin our service, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or 1 Corinthians 1, at the end of the chapter, verses 30 and 31, it says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Older kids, some of you have been learning the shorter catechism in your Sunday school class. Uh, Remember what it says about justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Wherein he does two things. He pardoneth all our sins. And accepteth us as righteous in his sight. Why or or how? Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The elect have obtained it. We have obtained righteousness. We've been declared not guilty by the judge of all the earth and set free to live a new life for his glory. The elect obtained it, which is amazing. But the rest were hardened, which is sobering. And let's look more briefly now at at how that hardening was predicted in verse eight and even prayed for in verses nine and 10. So we're on our second main point now, much more briefly. Hardening predicted. Look with me at verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, 
down to this very day. This is a combo quote from Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29. And it refers to the unbelieving Israelites in the days of Moses and also in the days of Elijah, or Isaiah rather. But in a sense, it also predicts or prefigures, perhaps we could say, what the unbelieving Israelites would be like in Paul's day. God gave them a spirit of stupor or slumber or sleepiness spiritually and morally. God gave them this spirit of stupor. And remember, this is an example of God hardening them. So it's not like before they had a spirit that was wide awake and was holy and pure. But then God came along and gave them a spirit of stupor instead. No, their spirit was unbelieving. Their spirit was rebellious. Their spirit was disobedient and contrary to God. And God giving them a spirit of stupor was God hardening them in their pre-existing condition. Sort of like if you put a strawberry in the freezer, it hardens the strawberry. The freezer doesn't make it a strawberry, rather it hardens it in what it already was. And again, this is a judicial hardening. This is... This is part of God's wrath and judgment on them. Like we saw back in Romans 1, where it talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth and therefore they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You remember all this? Claiming to be wise, they became fools And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And then it says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So the lusts were already there in their hearts, but God hardened them in that condition. God gave them up to those lusts, gave them over to those lusts. And in much the same way, in our verse, God gave them a spirit of stupor. And also, as Paul says, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Matthew Henry wrote, they shut their eyes and would not see This was their sin. And then God, in a way of righteous judgment, blinded their eyes that they could not see. This was their punishment. I think this should be an occasion for us to consider what God has given us as believers by his grace alone. He's given us not a spirit of stupor, but a spirit of understanding We have the mind of Christ. We've been given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
He's also given us eyes that see and ears that hear. We were blind and deaf spiritually, willfully blind, stubbornly deaf. But he has opened our eyes and ears to the gospel so that we can see and hear about our sin and about our Savior. And he continues to open our eyes more and more as he sanctifies us. The scales continually fall from our eyes so we can see. And our hearing gets sharper and clearer and more attuned to the truth of his word as we grow. I think that's a good thing for us to pray for, for ourselves and for each other, that God would sharpen our vision and strengthen our hearing as we grow in Christ. Well, Paul shows not only that this hardening was predicted in the Old Testament, but also, thirdly, that this hardening was even prayed for in the Old Testament. Look at verses 9 and 10. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is an example of what's called an imprecatory prayer or a prayer of imprecation or judgment which is basically a prayer for God to judge his enemies. Imprecatory prayers assume unrepentance on the part of God's enemies. Of course, we should pray first and foremost that God's enemies would repent and believe in Christ as God enabled us to do by his grace. But if they don't repent, if they stubbornly remain God's enemies, imprecatory prayers are prayers that God would do what a holy and just God should do, what a holy and just God must do in the face of unrepentant rebellion, and that is to judge his enemies with justice. Paul quotes Psalm 69 here where David prays against those who were opposed to God at the time. And Paul is applying this now to those who are opposed to Christ. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Their table probably refers to the good things God provides for them by his common grace. But since they don't acknowledge him or give thanks to him, the prayer is that as John Murray put it, the table that was intended for comfort and enjoyment would be turned to be the occasion of the opposite. And then he says, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Similar to what we saw back up in verse eight. And then finally, and bend their backs forever perhaps under the heavy burden of their own sin and of God's just judgment. What has God done for us and for all who trust in his son? 
three things I'll mention briefly as we draw to a close. First, our table is not a snare and a trap to us, though it should be. That's what we deserve. Instead, the words of Psalm 23 come to mind. Perhaps they came to your mind. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, we don't deserve a table. We deserve a cross. But because of the cross, we get a table from the Lord. Secondly, instead of our eyes being darkened, further darkened, our eyes have been enlightened so that we can see. Remember the shorter catechism definition of effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Our minds were darkened, but now they've been enlightened. Our eyes were shut tight, but now they've been opened wide. God has said, let there be light. And now there's light in our souls. There's understanding, there's knowledge. We can see now, we get it now. And we look to Jesus with our new eyes, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith What do we sing together? We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Third and finally, what do we have in Christ? Instead of our backs being bent forever, under the weight of our sin, under the weight of God's judgment. Our backs have been straightened after that burden has been removed once for all from our shoulders. It's like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. When he comes to the cross, if you know the story, where he is finally assured of the salvation that he had ever since he entered through the narrow gate, which is a picture of Christ. Bunyan says this, when Christian comes to the cross, let me, let me read it as we close. I saw in my dream that when Christian walked up the hill to the cross, his burden came loose from his shoulders and fell off his back, tumbling down the hill until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in to be seen no more. Then Christian was relieved 
and delighted and exclaimed with a joyful heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. For a while he stood still in front of the cross to look and wonder. It was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden. He continued looking at the cross until tears began streaming down his cheeks. As he stood looking and weeping, three shining ones came to him and greeted him with, Peace be with you. Then the first said to him, Your sins are forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and dressed him with new clothing. The third put a mark on his forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal on it. He told Christian to review it often as he went on his way and at the end of his journey to turn it in at the celestial gate. After this, they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on his way singing, Thus far I did come, burdened with my sin, nor could I find relief from my grief within. Until here I came, what a place this is. Here shall be the beginning of full eternal bliss. Now my burden falls from my back forever. From the cords that bound it, by grace my grief is severed. Blessed cross, blessed tomb, rather most blessed be the man who there was put to shame, a shame he took for me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking the shame of our sin on your shoulders on the cross and for standing condemned in our place. We know that we deserve to be hardened in our sin, but by your grace we've been redeemed from our sin instead. We thank you and we ask you to open our eyes more to see all that we have in you. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's take just a minute now to think and pray about what we've heard and then we'll sing together.